Welcome to the Rugby Coach Weekly Roundup Rodeo. Welcome to the Rugby Coach Weekly Roundup Rodeo. I'm your host, Phil Llewellyn. Thank you for joining us for Season 3, where we explore all things sports coaching. My guests are going to present their key learnings from a piece of content of their choosing, and we then discuss its application. Three excellent guests join me this week, so please could you introduce yourselves and tell us your current role. Hi, Phil. Absolutely. Uh, so my name is Rosie Collins, and I am a sport and exercise psychology consultant. I work with a number of different sports uh, through an organisation called Grey Matters, and I'm also a senior lecturer at Oxford Brookes University and just finishing off my PhD at the moment. Awesome. Thanks, Phil. Um, yeah, so I'm Serena. I'm originally from Toronto, Canada, as you can tell by my weird accent. Um, I'm a sport and exercise psychology consultant as well. Um, and I work with kind of various clubs at the moment, um, Leighton Orient, uh, WFC, also work with um, Oxford uh, with optimized potential. Uh, but yeah, a, a couple of different opportunities at the moment. Um, and I'm really interested in um, disability sport as well. That's definitely my passion and interest. Um, but yeah, looking forward to being here today. Hi Phil, thanks. Um, and I'm Alex Stoyle. Uh, I work with Serena at a company called Optimized Potential. Uh, in addition to that, I work with a number of different teams and organizations. Um, and I'm currently doing a professional doctorate uh, at the University of Portsmouth, uh, where I'm kind of looking at the topic of choking under pressure and sort of broadly kind of, yeah, performance under pressure as a sort of broader topic as well. Fantastic. Uh, absolute pleasure to have you all on board. Thank you for giving up your time. I really appreciate it. I wasn't nervous until Alex said, you know, to do dealing with stuff under pressure and now I'm suddenly feeling the feeling it. So we'll we'll get going and I'll throw it back to you guys. So uh, it's not the focus isn't on me. Uh, just a quick reminder for anyone listening to check out the blurb on Rugby Coach Weekly for links to all the content we discuss and the recommendations to other high quality content. So Rosie, we are coming to you first. What is it that you're going to talk to us about? Oh, well, fear not, Phil, you're in the right place with three psychologists in the room to <laughs> help you dealing with that pressure. Um, so I've, I've gone quite academic today. I've, I've brought a paper along with me and um, I brought it because it was one of the key texts, if you will, that really helped to spark some of the information about, about my own PhD. So um, my PhD is um, titled, I should know this but <laughs> off by heart, an exploration into the dichotomous positions held across the psychomotoric concomitants to high level performance. So it's a very psychomotoric motor control type um, body of work. And uh, actually that title is prefaced by the, the mini title, It Really Does Depend. And um, I've gotten into some hot water before with the It Depends approach to uh, coaching and, and psychology before, but it, it, it works really well for me. And, and this paper was one of the first ones that, um, that really spurred on that interest. So uh, the paper is basically called Striving for, uh, Striving for Excellence, a multi-action plan intervention model for shooters. And it's by um, Batoli and some of their colleagues. And it basically introduced this, as it says in the title, multi-action plan, or what I commonly refer to now as MAP. Um, and, and what MAP tries to do is in a very applied practical way, help us to understand um, the key features of performance, it tries to help us to understand what, what performance really truly is. And, and in a world where people were always talking to me about 
being in the zone and flow and and these sorts of things. This this really was the the nuanced voice of reason that I was looking for, um, because it basically explains and as with many things in psychology, sits really helpfully within a sort of a, a, a quadrant. I'm doing a little action, but I'm conscious that no one can see it. Um, that basically highlights that we can be very automatic in our performance, but we can also sit on another side of that spectrum. And this is across the x-axis of controlled performance. And alongside that, we've got on the y-axis, this idea that our performance can be really optimal um, but of course, it can just as likely be suboptimal. And so within there, we've got almost four what they call types of performance. You've got your type one, which is that that plan A, something that you would typify with something like a flow performance, something that is quite automatic, but it is an optimal performance. Happy days. Isn't it great when we get those? Um, but then just slightly to the left on that optimal to control performance, we've got type two. Um, which is this plan B performance, which actually demonstrates to me um, that we can have optimal performances that do come under cognitive control. They, they do require a lot of thinking, a lot of um, processing, a lot of planning. And that actually not only is that not not only is that possible, sometimes it's preferable. And that. Coaches and psychologists, we all need to calm down a little bit in trying to make all of these performances almost an out-of-body experience that just happens to us. And instead, it's something that we really can make happen um, and it can be under control. And I suppose the offset of that is that, of course, sometimes performance that is under our control can be suboptimal. And maybe we can um, be thinking about too many irrelevant things uh, or just have too much of a broad focus. And that that can be suboptimal but by the same token an automatic performance can equally be suboptimal so I, I loved this paper I loved the concept of Matt and as I said before it was the um the nuanced voice of reason in an otherwise absolutist world and uh, it was a real key turning point in my sort of research and understanding of what it, of what we do so that was what I brought with me today Fantastic. Thank you very much. Uh, there's loads to unpick in that because this is an area I know very little about, um, but I've definitely got lots of questions on. So um, that's there. Yeah, hopefully that's a good start. Um, just mentioned there that the sometimes the I guess the type one stuff can be suboptimal. Can you just dig a little bit deeper into that? Why, in what kind of give me an example of where if I get into that state of flow, why would that not necessarily be optimal? Um, that is a, a grand question um, and I suppose shows my, uh, I didn't quite explain it, that we've got our type one, type two, and then they explain anything that falls into the suboptimal as type three and type four. So anything that would be automatic but suboptimal, they would call type four. Um, and I guess the idea then, and, and perhaps an applied experience would make a bit more sense, and I'm sure Alex and Serena maybe have similar ones, is um, I've had performers and athletes talk to me about how much better they feel when they're just so chilled out just oh, I'm just really chilled out and I think let's look back to some of the best performances think about your own performances think about the the performances of your role models or, or those those super champs that we might like to talk about um, and I've actually I'm just in the process of trying to finish up a paper that explores this within motorsport and I've got some fantastic quotes of of drivers coming off um coming off the track and actually say, God, I had to fight for that one. That was the probably that's going to go down as the best victory of my career. And they're gritty. 
and they're they're sweaty and and they take they take everything from you and actually those are the performances that not only happen more often but they're the ones that we like whereas when I hear from my performers that they like playing chilled I think calm that makes sense that sounds to me like an optimal automatic calmness but chilled out that sounds to me as though perhaps you've got something left in the tank that that you've allowed yourself to just um to 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 just accept or or just to you've yeah I'm I'm waffling now you can see my point that that actually we can be in this position where we have a lack of focus or a lack of commitment to what we're trying to do and I would say that's probably the more a very pleasant experience but perhaps not the best one I think that makes a lot of sense and I so I guess my broader question and I I really like the fact it can talk about different levels of optimization I, I I think a lot of coaches certainly that I would talk to would would kind of resonate with the flow state and the zone and that kind of you know which a number of people that I know that are big on the kind of philosophy of sport and that type of approach to things would say you can't actually think yourself into that state which I find is really interesting and and if I'm honest I would tend to agree with whereas I think if you can separate that and the cognitive state I think that's that's a really interesting separation that I can I can definitely think myself into that state if I need to be but going into the other one it is maybe just a, a yeah as you say just something that comes and goes as a um, as an experience, as, as part of that kind of, I'm just here and I can't, I'm not in control of that. And, and I, I don't know, maybe it's the sport psych, the, the, the sport piece, the coaching piece. I, we tend to be people that like control and we like answers. And, and okay, so an open question kind of, are there some things that we definitely can't control for ourselves that can lead to performance that we just need to be maybe comfortable going if it happens great if it doesn't let's not worry about it let's not go searching for something that isn't necessarily in our control kind of where does that sit with you guys as a as a psych group I think you know it's really interesting because if you look at um, athletes most athletes elite athletes have a type a personality right and that's actually linked to perfectionism and you know, those athletes like to control everything, right? They want to think of every aspect on the day. I want to be able to control every element of my performance. But that actually is also linked with overthinking, right? Overanalyzing situations. So I think it's it's really interesting, you know, looking at, you know, the paper that Rosie, um, you know, brought up and kind of looking at, you know, what is that optimal state? And, and does it really depend on the sport as well? But I think, you know, if you're looking at kind of the link between perfectionism and kind of overanalyzing thing and, and kind of sense of, oh, I have to control everything. Yeah, that, that is linked to a decline in performance. Um, you know, I, I used to work with a swimmer and she's absolutely fantastic, but she had obsession, though she's a perfectionist, obsession with controlling every aspect of performance. And I literally had to work with her, it's working with her for six months on having the understanding and acceptance that we can't control everything, right? And actually, you know, bringing her to the other side of the spectrum and saying, well, we can't control everything and that's okay. Right. Um, but yeah, it's really interesting. I guess, Rosie, if I could ask you, do you find this is specific to um, certain sports? Because I know you mentioned motorsport, which is super interesting, but I find the the notion of flow state and versus uh, control. I find it specific to sport, but I'd be super interested to hear like your thoughts on that. If it's, if it's different from sport to sport. Um, no, that, that's a really interesting question. And the original article was um, trying to design an intervention for shooters. 
And I think a lot of that research tends to come from individual sports and, and maybe actually when we know that flow is typified by that challenge skill balance and perhaps that's something that's easier to obtain in an individual pursuit, I, I'm not sure. Um, but to be honest, I, I always try and get people to consider it less of, a, of an either or and just a case of let's just prepare for any possible element of your performance. So in particular with those, those team elements, and I think Phil asked a really, really interesting question about, um, you know, we do like control and actually, is that something that we just slip into? So much of, of my reading and my work at the moment is looking around priming and how we get primed into these different scenarios and actually being prepared to counter the performance negatives that might come to you and then allowing yourself to, to, to have volitional or non-control of what else is, is going on would be quite interesting. But I certainly think we could we could do with a bit more information about something like this within, within team sports. But I guess maybe that's the team momentum research. I think that's really interesting. And my sporting background was as a swimmer. And so obviously very individual, but I, I was, I love this and it definitely starts to tie in, I guess, with the sort of choking stuff that I, uh, I'm, I'm interested in with the sort of breakdown of automatic skills. So I guess it would be that sort of type, what you would, this paper categorizes that type three, where you're kind of overthinking things or you're paying attention to irrelevant things. But I guess from my swimming perspective, like thinking about how there might even within a, within a single race, there might be moments where it's good to be in a flow state of you know so just sort of thinking like bet essentially between the walls when you're just doing the same stroke over and over again and you you're probably paying minimal attention to the actual technique but then when you hit the wall and you want to do, it's a different skill at that point so you're trying to do that turn as quickly as you possibly can and there's some very separate elements of the race at that point and so at that point you might start to want to be really focused on executing those skills uh, just then and then you would want to kind of return to the flow state I guess so I'm just sort of yeah that was that was really interesting and I, I, I yeah so I, I guess all of that is just a sort of long way of saying I think Serena asked a really interesting question about whether different sports would be would show different kind of examples of this but also conceivably whether you could need both simultaneously. Cool. I, I see I love that Alex that's such a good point that you can be even in a relatively short performance needing different needing different performance states and I guess for me that that's kind of what underpins this the whole it depends approach that that is my philosophy my value I don't I don't know what you might call it but you know lots of the work we're looking into is looking at this you know is is an internal focus always bad well actually no it's not always bad so let's just be prepared for all of these things is it um is it the case that um having knowledge about how you want to perform the skill is always going to be bad and is always going to cause reinvestment. Well, actually, no. It's the case that not only are individual performers different, but an individual performer can be different at, throughout their career, or as you've just pointed out, Alex, throughout a, a minute-long period. Or I don't, I'm a much slower swimmer than you, I imagine, so, so I don't know what your PBs are. But um, we, we all, as practitioners, just need to be aware of the nuances of what we're dealing with and be be equipped ourselves to support athletes based on what their preference is for their focus or what their preference is for how they're going to learn as much as equipping our performers to have a variety of tools and skills to be able to counter 
all of the different challenges, and the challenges they're going to face now and the challenges they're going to face in the future. And it, it kind of blows my mind a little bit that you could commit to one approach or one philosophy that might disregard that, really. I think, Rosie, that's a really good point. I think, you know, and I have, you know, for example, individuals that are you know, doing their undergraduate or master's and ask, well, what, what approach do you use with athletes? And I was like, well, it depends on the individual. Right. It really depends on the individual's needs. You know, I, I mentioned the, you know, the swimmer that I work with that was perfectionist. But then, you know, I've also worked with athletes that are completely relaxed and kind of have this, you know, it's all good kind of attitude. So there's always going to be individual differences in terms of what really works best for this, you know, the individual athlete. Um, and I think that comes, kind of comes back to your main point is it does depend. It depends on the individual. It depends on the sport. It, it depends on the circumstances. I, I'm always conscious that I, I, for, for some reason, I think psychology gets separated out from lots of things. And, and I can't ever quite recognize why, because everything we do involves cognition and thinking and, and everything else. And it just seems like, well, actually, it should be the heart of everything we do. And it's not necessarily something that coaches specifically want to kind of tinker with or play with because they're not qualified. And I, I definitely understand that. But I'm also kind of thinking if you are a community club coach and you coach on a Saturday or Sunday morning with some kids or some teenagers or whatever that looks like, what might some kind of tools or tips look like for them just to recognize how people might prefer to do some of this stuff? Because I always feel like there's just that lack of information. I'm looking at a group going, I'm not really sure what your preference is or what your preference is or, or, you know, across like 20 or 30 kids. So have you guys got any kind of like go-to things that would be, a useful, I guess, almost recognition tool for the coach or the players themselves, rather not not to suggest that they're then going to start getting in and tinkering with all of this stuff in their heads, but just as a general, the more information I have about some of these players, the better. What what might be your kind of go-to tips? That I mean, it's such an interesting question, and I, I I don't don't fear community coach would be my first thing to say. That happens to us too, um, more than I would care to admit. Um, but I, I think it's two things for me. Um, it's it's forget forget the product, forget the outcome. We've got so many very sexy words in psychology that just get bounded about all the time. And the reality is that they are things we become as a result of our journey. So just focus on the skills, focus on the skills that they need. And you can either embed it into your practice, what you're doing, and you could plan something out and then get them to everyone sort of stop and actually let's have a conversation about this, what would help. Um, or, and this is something that I've certainly seen work really well in development sport, is get your performance just to think about, oh, how did you feel when you're in that situation? And you'll be amazed some of the words they come up with, oh, fluffy tummy, which I can only assume means butterflies <laughs> or wet hands, which <laughs> some of the different things that they might come up with. So actually start opening those conversations. And I know I'm assuming they might be really young, but you can have those conversations throughout all levels. So, okay, what would work in that scenario? And you just start to get people heightening that self-awareness, which is the first step to self-regulation, I suppose. That would certainly be my thoughts and what Serena and Alex reckon. Yeah, I, I completely agree. I think just asking people to to reflect on on what has been helpful, right? And and I think sometimes sometimes I quite like the word helpful as well. Like I think sometimes people can think in terms of like positive or negative or critical or, you know, like, but people respond differently, right? Like the humans are infinitely 
complex creatures and people will respond differently to different either bits of coaching feedback or different situations and and so just asking people just you know like when when you performed at your best like how did you feel what were you thinking what were you saying to yourself also you know those physiological signs right like but but also that you know we also know that some amount of stress and pressure is helpful right and i think that's probably quite interesting here as well is like you don't want to go into an event feeling you know some important competition feeling totally blissed out and totally chilled right like you need a bit of that adrenaline adrenaline is a great thing you know or cortisol is a you know those are great things for priming your body for physical activity so if your sport involves physical activity and let's face it basically all of them do like you're going to want a bit of that on your side so yeah just kind of and i think just therefore figuring out where that that happy point is in terms of kind of feeling a bit stressed slash excited um but really you know that's pretty hard for an external observer whether that's the sports psych or a coach or even a teammate to understand that so it's going to really come down to the individual and what might work for one person might not for another um so yeah i think that would be my kind of takeaway as well i think just reflect on it do, do you think it's about doing this like little and often because I, I i would definitely ask oh i've definitely got athletes that i've coached and i can think of some currently that if you said you know what what did you feel or those types of questions around strong performances they just go, i don't know and i always go is that because you've never thought about this so you you literally have zero self-awareness of that and if that is the case well how do i overcome that and help you overcome that or actually is that probably do know you just don't want to tell me and then it's trying to kind of work out well is that is that the relationship we have so if if they've never thought about it what would be kind of the initial steps to start to get them to think about it is it just asking more of those questions more regularly or a diary or just some notes or like how how do we get people to develop self-awareness I think self-reflection is huge um and you know it may be the case that you know a specific athlete may not be comfortable in sharing their thoughts and feelings right to their coach. Um, you know, it's funny, the article that I'm going to be talking about is, you know, the fear of athletes um, you know, coming across as being weak by expressing their thoughts and feelings. So I think, you know, the way to really implement that is kind of creating that culture and creating that sense of, look, it's okay here to kind of express ourselves. It's okay to kind of talk about, you know, how we felt after, let's say, making a mistake during a performance. And it's not something they feel comfortable talking with right away. I'm reflecting on it afterwards saying, look, you know, take five, 10 minutes after training tonight or after a game, reflect on it. If you could just write, you know, a couple points in terms of, you know, what, what you're thinking, what you were feeling and what your behavior was, um, just to kind of get them to reflect in it. And then they start really thinking about, it. they're like, oh, actually I was thinking, oh, that was a huge mistake. Therefore I'm, you know, we're going to lose the game for my team. Oh, actually I was feeling quite upset. Right. So it's getting them to kind of build that self-awareness and understanding. And that's when you kind of work from there. Um, for myself, you know, I really do like to integrate, um, you know, psychoeducation and mental skills um, when working with different coaches. So I might say to them, look, you know, let's say I'm delivering a workshop to the team and I'll say, you know, to the group, um, are you comfortable with the coach attending? Because I think it's important for the coach to, you know, be there when I'm, you know, teaching the, the athletes the different skills um, and to really have an understanding of, you know, the psychological implications of pressure and things like that. So I think, yeah, integrating the coach and having that understanding as well and having the conversation with the coach, you know, saying, look, you know, let what, what would you feel comfortable with? You know, let's start kind of working together on how we can kind of create this culture of, 
yeah, understanding, you know, thoughts, feelings, and behaviors. We actually had a conversation the other day, um, just talking about some of this stuff and that a lot of it was that fear of failure and fear of making mistakes and how that's received within the group. And you can, and it was interesting because there were probably four or five people that said, oh, I make a mistake. And I think that everyone else is then looking at me going, oh, why have they made a mistake? And they all kind of followed on in this conversation where they're all thinking the same thing, but then they all kind of ended up going, but no one's actually that bothered. Like I'm not bothered when I see someone else make a mistake, but in my head, when I make a mistake, everyone is going to be bothered about mine and it was this really just almost kind of just weird contrast that they weren't thinking other people's mistakes don't bother me so why would that not apply to other people when I make a mistake so we even got to say and I I'm still not sure whether this will actually work so I, I genuinely now feel like I should be paying you guys for this session because I'm just you know stealing your expertise which is cool but um would we talked almost about, we talk about primers, but actually just an almost an exploration where you just go, right, for five minutes, just try something and just, just make mistakes, like almost go over the top, not in making something difficult, but in just creating an environment where you're just willing to do whatever you want for a real short period of time and no one's judging. And I just wondered whether that would almost tee up well, I like I've survived. I've, I've literally made loads of mistakes there. It doesn't matter. No one looked at me. No one shouted at me. I'm not done it wrong, inverted commas, you know, and I wonder whether that would almost just kind of help them nudge towards mistakes. Like I could almost, that's probably the only thing I can guarantee in a game, like, or a training session, mistakes will happen. Everything else is probably up in the air, but we definitely know they'll, they'll take place. So yeah, interesting your thoughts. Yeah, I, I think that's really interesting. I think the, kind of building off of both those points i think that the, the starting point for a lot of this is just noticing right and i think that's quite a quite a helpful word right it's just like it's because sometimes you know self-reflection or something might have certain connotations that maybe you know if you're talking to some burly manly man rugby players they might not love the idea of that that might feel a bit kind of you know yeah sort of a bit too sort of well music and candles but you know just noticing right and and I think as the as the coach or the sports psych one of the things you can do is is going into that you can potentially kind of almost just assign the task of noticing as a first principle right so I want you to go out there for a training session or for a game even and just sort of say like well what do you notice about yourself like what do you notice about the thoughts you're having and I, I think your your point there about you know the things that we perceive or we we think about how others might be perceiving us that bear up to no logical scrutiny when you would ask that you know put yourself in the other person's shoes um you know but one of the first bits of that is, is awareness right and noticing like oh yeah i i do always assume that that person is gonna assume i you know i'm rubbish or i'm useless or if i make a mistake it's gonna be catastrophic even if it's not right and so yeah just kind of i think as a sort of yeah a first principle or a first starting point you can just just ask people to notice that and and conceivably also if you've got people who you think maybe are, are worried about the communication bit of that is you don't even necessarily need them to communicate it so long as they're doing a good job of tracking that themselves right so it could just be that they're noticing it for themselves maybe keeping a, a sort of private journal or, or or thought log but like if there is a, you know, I think Serena's point of like, you want to probably ultimately build a, a nice sort of collaborative, communicative, open kind of dynamic or, or, or environment. But if you're still at the early stages of that, just having people notice for their own benefit is, is a great starting point. 
I might be maybe maybe over overly cautious, but I have a personal rule that is um I'm not gonna open a can of worms unless I'm gonna be around long enough to sweep them back up again. Um so I, I'm always really reluctant to start something with a performer that maybe because of the many constraints that we have to deal with in put in sport, you know, the the timing, the budget, the whatever it might be, if I don't think I'm going to be around long enough to be able to support them through what the self-awareness might bring in, I, I don't even start because that's a disservice. I'm actually causing trouble. And I think similarly for coaches, I would always say those sorts of ideas are fantastic. They're great. Let's all just have a no hold bar. Let's just, you know, build some creativity and give it a go. And we're all committing right now to saying that it's okay if it doesn't work and we don't care, we don't mind. If you do that once, you've just created vulnerability and some funny stories for people to, to, to talk about. If, if you're going to commit to doing something like that, then great. But don't just hear these good ideas and then try them once and, it, and oh, it didn't work that first time, so we'll just move on. So I think if you want to do something, you want to make some change, you want to see some change, then crack on, but keep cracking on. Cool. I love that. Although I'm, I'm now slightly nervous that, you know, you know something I don't about my contract at the end of the season. Like, oh, not sure. No, I, yeah, no, I, th- I think that's a really good point. I think that's really good. And yeah, may- maybe that's something to kick down the line. I guess it depends how long we think is long enough to, to embed something like that in terms of a disrupted season and the opportunities to do it. But it's, it's, all, it's also one of those, I, I kind of go, how many times have I said, oh, I'll do that next time? And just never got to next time and actually when when is the right time to to introduce something like that but no that's great there's some loads to think about within that um cool right i there, as always there's loads more we could discuss but i'm conscious uh, we probably need to shift that on so um we are coming to serena next what is it you're going to talk to us about yeah so this is a little bit less um academic <laughs> so it's, it's essentially looking at Um, vulnerability in male athletes um, and kind of promoting the fact that it's okay to open up about their mental health. Um, And this is an article um, by Mikhail Melik. He's a senior lecturer at Cardiff University. Um, And he essentially talks about the All Blacks. Um, So those that are not aware, I hope that you're aware since this is uh, a podcast um, that rugby players listen to. Um, But it's uh, a rugby team in New Zealand, um, you know, one of the most successful uh, rugby teams of all time. And essentially, you know, they've created um, this mental health program for athletes to really be open about their mental health, um, especially males. Um, you know, I think the reason why I chose this article, even though it's from 2017, you know, it's very, you know, obvious and apparent that male mental health um, still has you know, this culture of, you know, stiffing your upper lip and kind of, you know, kind of push through like, the physical pain and the psychological pain. Um, but the thing that the All Blacks does is they create, you know, create this culture of, you know, acknowledging, you know, acknowledging that, you know, there will be pain and suffering with being an, an elite athlete. Disclosure, so creating a space that they feel comfortable with disclosing, you know, if they are suffering from um, ill mental health, and also acceptance. Um, and this is, you know, something that I think is you know, really big as well. You know, due to the pandemic, with so many athletes really suffering, and it, it's just been you know, really eye-opening in terms of, you know, why isn't this implemented everywhere, right? Why isn't this kind of program um, implemented everywhere? Um, and they really talk about, you know, the um, the idea of thriving, not surviving, right? For, you know, many males, you know, whether that's an adolescent male um, or adult, 
you know, they really feel like they kind of you know, need to, um, you know, brush it under the rug, you know, and kind of deal with it themselves. But that's, you know, also just surviving, right? So we want athletes to feel open and honest and, and feel like it's okay to be vulnerable. Um, and it's okay that, you know, being vulnerable and actually, you know, reaching out for support is not looked at as a weakness. It's actually looked at as a strength. You know, that's one of the most, you know, courageous things that somebody can do is actually say, hey, you know what, I, I do need support. And I think, you know, by framing, you know, mental health like this and kind of looking at it as, you know, again, you know, acceptance is not a weakness, you know, vulnerability is not a weakness. I think that it could really, you know, do a lot for, you know, different clubs um, in terms of managing players' um, mental health. And um, I think my favorite quote, um, you know, from the article is mind the empathy gap. Um, and, and basically, you know, what that means is, you know, trying to um, fill the gap of, you know, the, the several male athletes that do struggle for mental health um, and don't reach out for support. So it's really bridging that gap and understanding that, you know, mental health is just as important, if not more important than performance. Um, and elite athletes are human beings as well. And we need to treat them like human beings. Um, but yeah, I thought it was really interesting um, and, and something that I think should be applied across all sport. You know, of course, yes, funding um, definitely does play a role in terms of implementing these kind of mental health programs. But, you know, I really think that it's something that, you know, clubs, organizations, regardless of the sport, need to start implementing um, and understanding the implications of, you know, not, you know, creating a space and creating a culture where individuals feel um, you know, comfortable with uh, talking about their mental health. Fantastic, thank you. I, it's, it's quite a big question to lead off with, but um, why do you think there aren't these types of programs everywhere? Like, it, it just seems to be, common sense would, would probably do a disservice to how big a challenge this is, but it genuinely feels like it's a relatively common sense approach to have something like this in place with whether you're a, a community a community team or an elite performance team, from your experience, what why do you think people or we haven't got to that stage yet? Yeah, you know, that's a really good question. And I think there's, you know, there's several factors in terms of why this is not implemented across the board. I think, you know, first thing is funding. Um, you know, if you look at especially a lot of community clubs, they don't they hardly have enough funding to um, you know, pay for training sessions and pay for a kit. Um, and it's something that, yeah, it does cost money to implement. I think as well, culture. Culture plays a huge role. You know, for example, if you're looking at rugby or football, where these males have grown up in a culture that, you know, okay, no, we, we kind of hush hush. We don't talk about our, you know, our, our mental health issues. We don't talk about when we're in pain. Um, so I think, you know, those are kind of the two main factors to me. Um, you know, that really kind of stand out. Um, but again, I, I think it is shifting. Um, the positive part is it is shifting, but it's it's slower than it should be. Yeah, I I I think there's yeah any number of barriers and hurdles to kind of setting this stuff up in in kind of across the board. I almost wonder if there's something quite special about the All Blacks themselves that means they were prepared to take this risk. You know, and and I think there's probably a number of factors that just like and, and this is quite speculative on my part but i you know they went through a pretty in-depth kind of soul-searching performance overhaul because they went through a couple of rugby world cups where they were hands down the best team in the world 
didn't win the World Cup. So they were sort of trying to figure out why. And I think they they were quite open in that and, and were sort of willing to take a few risks. I think there's also almost you could kind of spin the kind of I think Serena's totally right that there is stigma within, you know, within pretty much all men about talking about the mental health or showing vulnerability. Um, but I almost wonder if by the time you're a six foot eight, 200 and whatever kilogram rugby player who plays for the All Blacks, who stands there and does the hucker, there's also something there that no one's going to call you a wimp, right? So if you're the, you know, you're in a position there where actually if you are prepared to be vulnerable, your masculinity is probably not going to be questioned because <laughs> and certainly not to your face <laughs> so i almost wonder whether there's in some senses that there was a kind of a bit of a demand from the all blacks to try and create a better environment and figure out why they weren't thriving in the way that they wanted to but also almost a sense of security and i, I also wonder whether just the fact that new zealand as a country is so obsessed with rugby you know that you know, once you're an all black, there is so much kind of kudos and respect that is inherent in just pulling on that jersey that I almost wonder whether that gave them a bit more flexibility even to just try some of this stuff for the first time in a way that potentially almost no other sports team would conceivably have that sort of same kind of, yeah, flexibility of, of approach. I think another thing for us to consider as well is that sport mirrors society and as much as sport you know we can look at sport and say why aren't you doing more and I appreciate that sport is at the cutting edge of most things so why can they not be at the cutting edge of pushing forward um, support and awareness and acknowledgement and acceptance of mental health but like, we do sometimes give sport a bit of a disservice you know why haven't you done better we're all just people we're all just trying our best and let's remember coaches and, and all other sports science sports medicine practitioners for the large part we all just want the best for our performers um, so I think we always have to be really aware of the fact that if there's a problem in sport it's not just stemmed from sport so it, it's just another roadblock to the to the points that Serena and Alex have already made. Yeah and possibly building off that I mean New Zealand are like as far as kind of global societies go they're probably one of the more sort of kind of liberal societies out there so I also wonder whether that might just be part of that right if, if it is a mirror of of the society from which it comes from right that's a that's a country that's kind of maybe just a lift you know just one step ahead of some of the other countries in terms of talking about some of these things so I wonder if that also is a, a contributing factor. The, the cynic in me does say are New Zealand very good at taking things that other people probably already do and publicizing them. And I, and I don't say that with any sort of malice, but I, you know, the whole sweeping the sheds thing, like, well, they didn't invent cleaning up after themselves. That's been around for forever, but they packaged it or the, the, I can't remember the guy's name that, um, you know, wrote legacy packaged it in a book that sold fantastically well, funnily enough. And suddenly everyone goes, well, if you, if you want to be like the all blacks, you had need to clean up after yourself. And, I just wonder about these types of things. Actually, would there be, I guess there must be similar programs and similar things happening that we're just not aware of. It's just an in-house thing that they don't share that's just for them, which I kind of, I, I quite like the idea of that. Like I, I get, I think putting it out there is, and this is the kind of the downside of it, I guess. You can put it out there and cynics like me will critique it and say, well, why, why is that a thing? Or actually, is it just for the people 
that are in your organization and they're going to benefit from it, but does putting it out there actually make a bigger difference and make more people think in something like this, does sweeping the sheds really make a difference? You could probably argue no. If this is actually, yeah, look, we all need to start talking about this in a more open way, in a more positive way, et cetera, et cetera, then, you know, I'm definitely on board with that. But I, I just want to jump back to the piece I can around empathy. Do, do we think we're less empathetic as a society now or has it just changed? Because this seems to be where a lot of the issue comes from, that I've got an issue, I want to share that, or I feel I need to, or I can, but I don't, I can't because I'll just be hit with all this. Well, you know, I had it, you're lucky, you know, I had it tough, blah, 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 but all that kind of, it, it, it's not a problem because it's not my problem. And I just wonder, I hear a lot about empathy, but I just wonder actually how we've ended up being as unempathetic as perhaps we are as a society. And maybe that's, that's far too big a question, but I, I do think it's interesting. If, were, were we incredibly empathetic? And suddenly it's disappeared or is that are we kind of looking for something that isn't there i think that's a, i mean it's it's a big question and i think you know we're, we're recording this in the week of the sort of mega markle scandal and all the rest of it i think there's definitely a take on that around an empathy gap conceivably um and without getting too kind of political about these things because i, I think it could very easily but i i, I also wonder whether it's almost just as the world has become so much more globalized and with particularly with social media, I almost feel like, you know, if back in the day you had a small village of people and you weren't very empathetic to your neighbors, that was probably going to have some pretty direct consequences for you. Like you were going to get cut off. You were going to feel socially isolated. All of a sudden, I wonder whether just like, there's a little bit more kind of less of that incentive. You can now just be kind of cruel or, unempathetic and and kind of get away with it um and i think that you know there is also conceivably just an angle that like it's quite i think i i think sort of as humans you know we're, we're sort of psychologically primed to be more you know feared for ourselves rather than worried for others it's kind of like makes sense you know if you're walking through a jungle and you come across one of your clan and they've been their legs missing because they've been mauled by an animal you are must much better off just running away than trying to look after your mate, right? Because that's how the whole clan goes down because everyone gets eaten by the tiger while they're trying to look after their mate. So it kind of makes sense, but at the same time, we've got to be better than that. Um, but I think there is there is also an argument that potentially, you know, there are organizations and individuals out there who have essentially monetized that lack of empathy um, and have sort of made it seem like it's okay to be selfish or non-empathetic or whatever so uh, yeah that's that's kind of my take on it as from a very sort of high level structural view were you specifically referring to the daily mail in that comment at the end or not no that's fine um <laughs> no but uh, yeah and I, there's, as you say there's societal bits to it i guess so in terms of in your roles how how would you go about kind of developing empathy um or getting people to develop empathy because this is just personally it's, it's on my idp and it's sat right in the middle between strengths and weaknesses because i'm never quite sure i always look at it and be like oh no i think i was really empathetic there and then i'm like oh oh no was i oh hold on now i'm not, now i'm just second guessing myself and i'm not sure so it's it's something i'm always i sound like a hero there don't i like I'm, I'm trying to be more empathetic it's not it's just something i'm conscious of that we probably need to be more aware of how other people feel and how they respond to things so again i guess like top tips for people that want to 
develop empathetic behavior or understanding? This might be like very simplistic, um, but especially when I work with adolescent athletes, um, you know, they're quite young, they're still kind of at the stage of development um, where they're still kind of, you know, grasping and understanding, you know, how people behave and, and how to communicate. Um, but let's say, you know, an athlete, I was working with an athlete who was six <laughs> and, you know, he said something quite mean to one of the other athletes. And I said, well, you know, if he said the same thing to you, how would you feel? So I'll be really upset. I'd be really upset. So I think it's, it's almost kind of reframing it as, well, you know, how would you feel if, if that was said to you, right? And kind of, you know, let's say that you were in that person's shoes um, and really understanding that, right? Because, you know, the perpetrator or let's say, you know, the individual that is, you know, let's say it's a coach or whatever the case may be, that's, you know, not having that empathy, empathy piece, you know, they're not truly understanding the impact on their players or support staff because, you know, they don't understand how that individual feels, right? So it's, it's again, I know this is a very you know, simple um, kind of perspective, but yeah, understanding, you know, what would it be like to be in that individual's shoes and asking them, you know, again, kind of creating that dialogue. Um, you know, I, like you said in the beginning, you know, is it something that communicating to my players and asking them to share their thoughts and feelings, is that something that, you know, should I start small, should I start big? But it, it's starting to have that narrative and using that language, right? And, you know, disclosure is a big thing as well. You could be, you know, as a coach, yeah, when I play rugby and, and I, you know, let's say that I made a mistake, um, you know, in the 78th minute, um, yeah, this is how I felt, right? So it's, it's a little bit of both. It's, you know, creating that kind of narrative, that role model behavior and disclosure, um, as well as kind of, yeah, how would you feel, you know, being in their shoes? I'm going to cheat slightly and um, build on what Serena was saying, maybe answer both your questions there, Phil, because I, I don't know if it's a, a lack of empathy per se. I just think that we expect so much from coaches. Um, the vast majority of the coaching population are volunteers. They're people who got in to help out and they're still here. And um, they've had some support through their qualifications, but we know that the information that's covered that moves away from technical, tactical, strategical uh, within a coaching qualification, we might touch on well-being, but to be honest with you, it honestly seems as though we're giving them just enough to be worried, but not enough to do anything about it. So I think the reason that we've got maybe a, a, an issue or a gap is that we are just expecting too much from people who are already giving so much and and so in terms of what I might do similar to um to Serena's really really good points there of just just trying to get a bit of perspective on it and how would you feel and I think that's got to happen for everyone it's not it's certainly not just the psychologist's job to be empathetic and it's absolutely not just the coach's job to be empathetic I have worked with some coaches who have been treated appallingly by some of their athletes it's a case of the fact that everyone here is human and everyone here is giving their time whether they're paid to be there or not it's still long long days nights weekends trips away from family missing big occasions everyone here is making a sacrifice and everyone here is making a commitment so how can we all just consider the needs and the thoughts and the feelings of everyone around us and if it becomes a more of a community piece if it becomes something that actually everyone can can understand that it's important for our well-being and i'll tell you what it will have a impact on our performance as well the next thing you know people are more keen i love that no i, th I think that's a really great answer and it's 
I, I always catch myself and it's it's the training one for me where someone will, you know, a player will message you go, oh, I can't make tonight. I've got, it's a family issue. I've got to stay on at work or something like that. And I kind of, it's almost being comfortable with the thoughts in my own head. Like I'm not sharing with them with anyone, but at some point in my head, I'm like, yeah, not that committed. Like what, well, well, I've given up work to, to make training. So why can't you? And it's just that kind of, that is that real selfish. I'm just going to directly compare myself to you and a situation that actually, sometimes I know more about than others but I in in reality I know very little about and I'm just going to make a judgment off like a one sentence whatsapp that you've sent me and then it's that kind of no 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 like I literally that could be anything I have no idea what that actually means I probably don't need to respond with what I'm thinking immediately I'll just let it lie and and go back and go you know hope everything's okay and and just kind of try and yeah try and make sure it's all right and not not judge that and I do think it's that just being comfortable with my mind may jump to the the negative judgmental part but actually as long as I'm not exhibiting that it's kind of all right yeah and I, I think the only uh, I'm going to be possibly even uh, both Serena and Rosie kind of preface theirs by sort of apologizing. I'm, a, I'm going to apologize as well, because I think this might be even more trite um, or, or simplistic potentially, which is to say like, until you develop a perfect telepathy, I, I think empathy should always be on your development plan, right? Like it's, it's an ongoing process, right? And you're always going to encounter different people, new people from different backgrounds, all the rest of it, right? And, and you know, if at some point you feel like you've perfected it in a coaching setting, then expand it out to other environments as well, right? So, you know, it's probably something that you're never, unfortunately, going to be perfect at. No one is, right? And I, I think for, for us as, as sports sites as well, right? Like that's, it's a huge part of what we do. And it's something that we can always be improving on. So yeah, I, I guess don't don't ever feel like it's a bad thing that it's still on there. I'm just going to rewind back to what you said, Phil. Um, you know, regarding you know being okay and being comfortable with those thoughts and feelings. I think you know one thing to remind yourself is you're a human being, right? It's not always going to be oh, okay. They sent me a message. Great. You know, I'm happy that they're missing training today. It's not going to be all you know uh, roses and daisies. It's not. You're a human being, right? you're going to have, you know, different thoughts and feelings. And yeah, in the beginning, you may be frustrated, right? But it's just taking a moment and saying, okay, and let me just, you know, let that sit for a moment, take some time to kind of reflect on it, and then respond. I know for myself, I have a rule that let's say that something happens to me you know, work related or personally related, that's frustrating. I give myself a day to reflect and then respond. Because I know that, you know, taking that time to reflect and really have that self-awareness is better than me responding right away. Right. But again, I think it's it's just understand we're human beings. Right. We're not going to get it perfect all the time. You know, whether that's a coach, athlete, sports psychologist, we definitely don't get it perfect all the time. Right. So it's just remembering that. But then you lose out on the satisfaction of sending an angry email. And that that just like it's great, isn't it? Let's be honest. Just type, 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 send. Damn, what have I done? No, that's cool. Alex, this t telepathy thing, how do I develop that, please? Because if, if you've got a roadmap to that, I'll pay you a lot of money. That would be great. Um, I'll, I'll send it to you, uh, but, uh, but, but mentally. <laughs> no, Let me know when you get it. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll work on that. Superb. Um, Alex, we're going to stick with you and we're going to uh, shift the discussion on. So what is it that you're going to talk to us about? Yeah, so mine's... Um an article by um, 
Jack Pitbrook. Uh, so he's the kind of Tottenham Hotspur correspondent for the Athletic. Um, so I've I've given this a bit of thought, and I don't think there's any way I can get through this conversation without first confessing to being a Spurs fan. So that's that's where this sort of comes from. I, there's no way I could have done this otherwise. Um, and the title of it is Guardiola has made me think Spurs shouldn't have sacked Pochettino. Um, and basically the premise of the article is um, that the sort of the resurgence we've seen over the last sort of couple of months in the Man City team, you know, they'd had quite a poor season last season by their own standards. They'd had a really poor start to the season. They were miles off the top four, miles off the lead uh, in the Premier League. Um, and then they've just completely turned it around and bounced back. Then they now look borderline uncatchable at the top of the table. Um, and uh, and so the sort of the premise here, which I think is quite interesting, is that, you know, modern football requires a sort of a, a constant churn, a constant turnover in the managers. And so actually there's a point in it where it sort of says like, so the Jack Pitbrook, writes or he quotes himself from a previous article in which he says i said that modern football was too impatient and fast moving for a manager to rebuild and renew a team five years into a job and so i think there's something that's sort of quite interesting um from a coaching perspective just in how pep seems to have turned it around right and so a lot of that is kind of around the idea of sort of going back to first principles so he sort of talks about how you know the team kind of goes back they they sort of decide what's important to them kind of tactically and in terms of their identity so it's sort of like what we are as a team how we had success in the past what we had to come back to in our game move the ball quicker do more passes stay in position run less with the ball do it together above all that was the commitment of the players so that's kind of like what what Pep has kind of said on the subject. Um, and so I think that's sort of interesting from a number of angles in terms of the sort of a bit on kind of team identity, kind of team buy-in, team commitment. I think there's also something quite interesting there in sort of in terms of the sort of autonomy that Pep seems to sort of like be bringing the players into the sort of the, the discussion. Right. So he's not just sort of sat there up on high saying, Here's how we're going to turn this around, lads. He's kind of got their their take on it as well. So I think that's that's interesting. But I think there's also some sort of underlying assumptions here that I also find really fascinating. So one of them is this kind of concept that you know modern football demands a new manager every sort of four or five years, which is in complete contrast, you know, to 10, 15 years ago when clubs will get criticized i remember you know, chelsea were coming for all sorts of flack because they were constantly firing their manager and everyone's going they should be more like arsenal or man united they you know where wenger and ferguson have had these incredible careers and incredible success what chelsea needs is more consistency so there's been this whole kind of narrative change there around what's good and i think there's an even further assumption under that which is therefore this kind of idea that it's partly because modern footballers and potentially just modern sports people are in some way sort of substantially noticeably different to you know almost a different species to the people who were playing this game 15 20 years ago you know that ferguson could get away with kicking a football boot into david beckham's face 20 years ago but you couldn't do that today with marcus rashford right which I think is also quite interesting just because like at the time, David Beckham was constantly ridiculed in the tabloids for being girly. Like he got loads of ridicule for wearing a sarong 
or as it was called in the press, a dress, right? While he was on holiday, right? He got he got loads of stick for marrying a Spice Girl and being more obsessed with his hair than his football and all that kind of stuff, right? So, but I think there's something quite interesting just in that as well. And I think also there's one final assumption, which is probably the most controversial one, given that this is a sort of coaching podcast, but it's also that this whole article is based around the idea that the coach is the number one factor in how a team performs, right? And that therefore, like, you've got these 11 guys who start a game, all the subs, all the rest of the squad, but if you change one person, that's what's going to turn that all around. And so I thought that was just, there were just a few, yeah, uh, I feel like that's a bit of a sort of shotgun approach to to my sort of thoughts on it. But um, yeah, I, I thought the whole thing was really interesting, both on a quite a superficial level of like just a, an interesting topic, but also some of the assumptions that go into it. No, I love that. I, it's just the great irony of sport, isn't it? If you win and you do really well, well, the players were great, weren't they? Oh, so yeah, perform really well. And then when you lose, now the manager, got to change the manager or the coach. And you just, I, I've still not worked out why that is. I, I don't know whether it's just the nature, as you say, of elite professional sport. It would cost you too much money to just scrap the team. The manager's the easiest person to kick out the door rather than that constant. And I guess we had, you know, managers will have a turnover of players in squads. It's less visible, potentially. It's it's more kind of slow burn, you know, couple, two or three leave here, four or five come in or whatever, rather than like a wholesale change. But I, I yeah, I'd be interested in what your thoughts are on why we still obsess with the impact that person can have. And I'm sure there is, there has been some research recently that came out around actually like a percentage impact a coach or a manager can have. And it, it wasn't particularly high. I, I can't remember the figure, but it, like, I think it was around 30% or something like that. And you go, okay, so 70% of the stuff in my job is out of my control, but I'm still going to get kind of blamed for it when it doesn't work, which I find, yeah, as you say, it's mad. Yeah. And I, I think there's also the sort of, so I think there's there's something in that for sure. And and yeah, I, I think you're right that like there are these various studies that kind of come out with yeah a, a number of how much, you know, what one coach can do or not. And I think there's probably an argument that that varies quite a lot by sport as well, potentially. Um, but I think there's also just this like humans, even people who are sort of reasonably analytical are just so subject to this fallacy of kind of like teams reverting to the norm like reverting to their mean right like teams will fluctuate in their performance over a given period of time right so they will have an average level and sometimes they will be above that average and sometimes they'll be below that average right and so if you have a team that is below that average for slightly longer than the press might give you know might tolerate or the fans might tolerate but even you know at a sort of an amateur level or where there's no sort of press kind of attention but you know just it starts to get a bit unnerving a bit kind of scary but that that team is likely to come back up to where it was sooner or later and of course what might happen in a lot of these cases is the manager gets sacked as that sort of long period of being below average comes to an end kind of naturally right and so then the team goes on a great run of form and everyone goes ah it's the new manager bounce this guy really knows what he's doing he's brought fresh life in yeah and there's uh, also like probably is a a factor right like having a fresh face having like a a bit of a sort of clean slate mentality might be helpful in sort of drawing a line under those bad bad performances that have come before but it's also still just the same players they're still as good as they were the week before in all the sort of like underlying metrics it's just that 
for some reason it clicks that week and didn't the week before. Um, so I guess there's, you know, maybe, maybe for your coaches, there's a bit of a kind of, they can take the pressure off and just sort of realize that it's, it's not their problem. It's just the players. <laughs> Alex, I'm, I'm loving this article. It's, it sounds really interesting. And I love how you were very quick to, to admit or shout from the rooftops. I'm not sure which, uh, your, your fandom. Um, but I'm just really curious to see what you think about the sort of Hume's law that seems to be going on at play here that, oh, well, Manchester United always did, so we should. Or now we're starting to say, well, look at what Chelsea did and now we should. And I mean, I've seen it all over sport, do, but do you think that maybe we're just trying to make something, take something that's worked in one area and make it work in another? I, I think there's probably a, a, a good amount of that. And I think certainly in terms of the reasonably quick turnaround in that complete change of narrative from teams should stick with a manager for 10 years and build long-term success to now you've got to change them every five years. So I think there's, there is a bit of just sort of like the new trendy theory concept that just sort of feels more appealing. Um, I think there's also arguably something, you know, that's a bit about the sort of like, I think football has a sort of a bit of a vibe of kind of exceptionalism. Like, and therefore there's sort of something maybe unique about football as well that's different to other sports, um, at least potentially within the football community. That's a bit of a speculative one. Um, but yeah, I, I, so I think I think that's definitely part of it. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know. Um, it's, a, it's a great question. I don't know if, if anyone else has, has thoughts on that. I kind of want to follow up with the question, to be honest, because this is something, I mean... I'm, yes, a self-proclaimed Man United fan. Um, and I think, you know, for me, I look at, for example, players' social media. Marcus Rashford, to me, like he's, you know, he's an amazing player on the pitch, off the pitch, he's a fantastic human being. But I look at some of his comments and same with, you know, for example, let's say Manchester United's um, Instagram page or Facebook page, you know, let's say that there's a, a post about Ollie, who's the manager of Manchester United. And it is just it, it, it's quite terrifying to read some of the posts because you see people completely ripping them apart. And I think, do you think that the press and, and social media and the fact that, you know, there's individuals that don't have to have accountability or circumstances for, you know, making racial remarks, making, you know, remarks about the manager, you know, being awful and sacking him. Do you think that that plays an influence in kind of this idea of modern football now? Because, you know, I think about you know, the implications of, of players, of coaches, of directors, of support staff, you know, having to have the pressure from, you know, social media and, um, you know, and, um, you know, newspapers and media. And I think, you know, that is such an overwhelming thing to deal with, something that you can't control. I, I Yeah, I mean, I don't have much evidence for this, but I think yeah speculatively like that makes total sense I think social media as a way of sort of amplifying and kind of snowballing exaggerating and building momentum behind criticism is is almost certainly a factor I think there's there would be an there's an interesting sort of parallel universe where the stadiums have been open this season and potentially Pep had been fired a month into the season. I'm not sure Mourinho would still be at Spurs. I'm not sure Ole would still be at Man United because I think if you'd had fans in the stadium as those respective teams were going through kind of sustained sort of periods of poor form, you know, that 
that's a much more sort of tangible thing. If you've got the directors in the box hearing that, you know, I, I, I do wonder whether there would be, we, we could have a host of different managers in the Premier League at the moment if you'd had some pretty annoyed fans. But I do also think that those fans maybe get riled up behind the scenes by some of the, yeah, some of the stuff that's going on in social media. Um, so, yeah, maybe Pep is, is in some ways a bit lucky there. I think it's fascinating how they all link together, though, isn't it? Because it's the someone the best description I've heard of elite football was it's not sport, it's entertainment. So it, is, it ceases to be a, a sports business. It is just a business. It is about entertaining people and new managers. There's a narrative there and, and everything else that goes with it. And the fans buy into that because, as you say, social media gives you it, it's it's just it's shouting at your TV, but to an audience now, isn't it? It's no different. When you'd have been watching them 20, 30 years ago, the only people that would have known you were angry were your, your mates in the pub or the people sat on your couch. Whereas now, however many people follow you, you can engage with and you can be your own pundit and do all the things that people enjoy doing on social media. But it, it obviously just goes, uh, yeah, clearly well, you know, a long way too far. But I also think it's that interesting piece around... I'm just thinking athletics. Like I can probably only name you one athletics coach. And bear in mind that the, the 100 metres in the Olympics is probably watched by a billion people. But could anybody name any of the coaches of those individuals? If they're into athletics, maybe, but actually they're just not public profiles, are they? They're not the front of that, that group or that team or whatever. And, and actually how much of an impact that has on the manager's role is is being the face of the organisation, isn't it? As much as you would say, well, the players are the the profile and everything else. I, I'm not. They still sell shirts, sure, but I, I do think the manager is being paid for that responsibility to to take all of that and to take that criticism. Which I guess you've got a choice if you want to get involved in that space. You don't have to be there. You don't have to be on social media. That doesn't excuse the fact that you know you should receive abuse if you are. But it's it's that kind of yeah, I'm not sure. I just think it's really difficult. I, I think, you know, abuse is a line, but criticism, we can all be criticised just because you're a public figure and people, and, and the tribal nature of football, I guess, is something maybe other sports don't see. It is literally life or death for some of them, isn't it? And it's just, yeah, it, it's beyond anything else, I guess. We probably see maybe American football somewhere close, but not not quite on the same intensely like they're not rioting when they go to play in the Euros or something are they like it's yeah there's a nationalistic bit to this as well I guess go on Serena jump in no that was a really good point you know regarding yeah them being entertainment but at the same time it's like if you look at I mean if you look at somebody like Ollie right like I mean obviously he was in the limelight you know as a player but should managers have to put up with that why is that part of their role to have to be able to manage, you know, all the expectation and the you know, criticism from fans, from some individuals that maybe don't know a lot about football as well. Um, but yeah, it, it's something to me, you know, especially when I see be abuse online and in the tabloids, it's like, you have to realize these, these individuals are human beings, right? That's really going to hurt them as much as, you know, people like, for example, Mourinho is a really good um, example of somebody that comes across, you know, very chauvinistic and very, you know, sorry, Alex, but, um, you know, he comes across like, yeah, nothing, nothing kind of, you know, hurts my feelings or harms me. But I can guarantee you at the end of the day, he goes home and he's upset about what has been said to him and, at what, and about him as well. So I think, yeah, it's something that's quite concerning. And I have worked, 
you know, with a couple of coaches that have experienced that within football, um, as well as players. And it's, it, it does impact them. And I think that's something that we need to be aware of. Do you think there is a way to change the narrative? Because if, if we said all things being equal, your chances of winning are 50%, which isn't, which isn't actually that great. But if you ask fans, what's your expectation? They'd be like, well, we win every game. And, and for me, that I think that's where the issue comes. There's, there's just this huge void between reality and actually, at best, most successful sports teams ever have probably only got to 80%. So you're still losing one in five. Like, how is it that people think that just because they're my favourite team and they've got all these superstars and they should do really well, that then when they don't, I, it just seems detached from reality. And I, I, I literally would have no clue how we go about influencing those people to recognise that your expectation. I mean, Stuart Hooper, bring it back to a rugby example a few weeks ago, Stuart Hooper um, who's the Bath director of rugby said we wouldn't expect was it expectation I'm sure it was I can't remember I have to double check the word but I'm sure he said we wouldn't expect to win and everyone went social media blew up and there was all these people going why well this is a loser talking and get rid of him why would you not expect to win and I'm like expectation is like a certain outcome H how can you as a you know even self-aware like intelligent individuals say you would expect to win a sports game surely it's there's just so much chance there's so much you can't control and I'm just it was just staggering that one word brought him all this criticism and actually no one had considered that maybe they don't expect to win like do they want to win yes do they clearly do everything they can to win is there an expectation that they will win no like why would there be I think I'm an Evertonian, so I've stayed conspicuously quiet during this conversation. Um, but but almost pulling some of your points together, you're talking about that expectation and, and fans thinking that they should have a say and they can have a say. And um, just to keep down your rugby route, um, we're talking about social media abuse. Let's turn to the officials for a second and look at another very innocent party that have been receiving astounding amounts of... Um, abuse online in person through the post and um i'm gonna say it it wasn't a knock-on in that <laughs> in that wales game <laughs> i'm gonna say it but um where's the remove button from this call let me <laughs> <laughs> um i do wonder whether or not that that we need to to consider actually do these people think that they've got they can have a say because they've had a say in so much before. And Alex made such a valid point that had the fans been there, would the landscape be very different? And so you can almost to a degree, you can't forgive everything, but you can forgive a lot of people thinking that their points of view are important and valid and noticed because a lot of the time they are. I think you've just justified my social media there, Rosie. So I'm, I'm going to take that. As much as we disagree on the knock-on, the fact you said my point of view is valid when I tweet absolute garbage, that's great. I, I can live off that for a long time. But no, I think it's a great point. I, th I think you're dead right. And yeah, it, I guess it is a balance that how how clubs interact with them and how they interact with the club and and the, the kind of the nuance that goes with that, because it can't go too far there's a fine line between then the fans running the club and you know as soon as they decide that or one group decides they want somebody out then it's a 
you know, it's a witch hunt almost then, isn't it? Which, which can become just as dangerous as, as abuse and anything else. But I, yeah, that, no, it's really very interesting. Alex, did you want to jump in? Sorry. Uh, I guess I was just going to sort of, uh, somewhere in what, what Rosie was sort of saying there, I was kind of thinking that there's almost coming back to that kind of point about like, how come the, the All Blacks had adopted what they had, right? It's like, and, and maybe that there's something a little bit exceptional about them that gave them that freedom right is like when you're talking about the sort of like the tribalism that comes with football and the sort of like you said that it's so much about the business and obviously the the public image and the sort of shirt sales and commercial viability of of each club is therefore is dependent on how well they perform so but in a very short-termist way right like if you can just keep generating the revenue through through advertising deals and shirt sponsors and Champions League income, you can just keep spending money as well and keep buying better and better players until you've bought them all, um, which isn't true of basically any other sport. And so it, there is something a bit different there. That, but that also means that potentially there's a kind of a bit of just a like, you kind of hunker down and you just sort of make short-term decisions. You probably maybe don't necessarily take particularly big risks unless there's a very clear kind of like bottom line benefit like the financial implications of doing that right so you might take a risk by going on a you know like by expanding out and sort of like doing tours in different parts of the world or signing new sponsorship deals with a company that's not even uk based or has no presence in the uk but just because it generates some sort of eyes on shirts in a different market and all that kind of stuff that's fine those risks are totally okay even if they massively disenfranchise the sort of local fan base right and you, you definitely see a bit of you know, a good amount of that of, of the sort of the fans who go to go to the games you feel really lost i think in modern football because they they don't really necessarily recognize it from the game 20 30 40 years ago um but that yeah conceivably you know that that i think is quite an important you know, uh, decision-making factor in in why certain things do happen or don't happen. Um, and I think that probably could stifle some of the sort of change. That, and, and I think possibly that, you know, this idea that these modern footballers is different is also therefore a bit weird to, to some football fans and, and that that's maybe sort of seen as also just a bit of a change that people don't necessarily like um, or that it, they see it as sort of part of the same problem even conceivably um and that there's sort of almost a sense that yeah like oh well these sort of you know spoiled rich kind of pretty boy yeah like there's all sorts of words that get associated with with footballers that are sort of very not even when it's sort of personal criticism it's just sort of like a nasty preconception um which cannot be helpful for those those players on a sort of psychological well-being perspective but that was a bit of a ramble, I think. <laughs> no, it's interesting. I also wonder, you talk about that hunker down bit. I, I wonder from a business perspective if some will now genuinely just kind of go, let's just keep our head down because this will blow over in a couple of weeks. There'll be something new to talk about. And, and we'll kind of, we will get away without having to change something because we know the narrative just keeps going and going and going and something else will explode. And do you know what I mean? You can almost not bury your head in the sand, but it, you you just you can play the game in itself and just know that right actually there'll be will we might be the, the headline today but we're going to be chip paper tomorrow and and actually just just keep moving on and, and doing what we do um and whether that's an actual plan or whether that's just just good kind of pr i'm not sure 
Cool. Yeah, I think that's that's possible. Though I think there's oh sorry, I think there's maybe just as a bit of a counterpoint to that is you've still got all the all the pundits and journalists. They've got you know inc- you know ever increasing amounts of column inches to fill, right? So you develop these narratives, and so those narratives are incredibly hard to change. It doesn't you know so once once the press have decided that that actually I should have probably mentioned that I think one of the reasons this article is interesting in and of itself is because it's a journalist saying I had this very clear view I wrote it up I said Pep was useless and should be fired I thought Poch was useless and should have been fired and he's actually coming out and going maybe I was wrong maybe I need to be cautious of the narratives I'm spouting but that is incredibly rare right but you do have after every game, you've got the same talking heads that's spouting the same narrative. And once it develops, it's incredibly sticky, right? And then that's fuel, right? You get this the Sky Sports clip or BT Sport Pundit clip or match of the day or whatever that's being retweeted all across Twitter, but you know, by the same people who are now saying, like, Oh, I want I want him out of my club. That that manager's useless now. So I think that that does compa- compound it. No, 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 it's very true. And it, and it and they they don't help, do they? You know, there's definitely been some criticism of the criticism that pundits give people being over the top and, you know, even going to the press and, and the Six Nations bit around Sonia McLaughlin and were her questions appropriate or not? Were, are you trying to fish for a story? Are you asking a question that you know they couldn't answer? And and as much as I love it, because Nigel Owens kind of proves that or says that it was a knock-on, um, but it, it <laughs> just had to get that in there, sorry. But I also don't think that's that's helpful because it completely undermines the referee on the field that's made the decision and and the number one rule is the ref's decision is final as it kind of is in any sport but actually when you then got ex ex professional referees just going no 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 i thought he got it wrong as well i i don't everyone wants a say but i don't know where that leaves us if because it's, it's just an endless cycle isn't it everyone is just commenting on something and commenting and commenting and commenting and the narrative never stops and it never changes, as you say. So mm, a big problem, but not necessarily one we can uh, we can solve now as much as I'd like to. So um, we will kind of wrap that up there, but I'm going to come back to you guys for your recommendations in terms of other things you think people should check out. Um, so Rosie, what, uh, what are you suggesting people take a look at? Um, okay, so it's been a particularly difficult week for women, um, although many weeks are, are quite difficult and... Um, I know that lots of uh, my friends and my family and I'm sure women everywhere are struggling this week um, because of numerous things. And of course, the awful Sarah Everard story and um, yeah, lots of stuff going on in the press. But by the same token, there's been some fantastic uh, developments within female sport this week. Uh, So I'm seeing a a whole lot more conversation about the menstruation cycle. Um, We are now sending sports bras out for our athletes this just in female athletes have boobs apparently but i'm really pleased that we are having that narrative and it's all going out there so uh my kind of another thing moving away from the sporting um domain that people might want to read is the invisible women exposing a data bias in a world designed for men um by carolyn criado perez um which Bless him, my partner, I can't imagine he will uh, make it all the way to the end of this podcast, but I appeared with this book a couple of weeks ago and he went, isn't that a bit narrow? And I said, a book about 50% of the population. And he stopped talking to me after that. So I think actually anyone who's who's in working in sport or, or anywhere really at the moment who wants to understand um, what's going on in the world at the moment and, and how actually we can build performance for, for all people, men, women, children, 
the lot. Check that out for sure. Fantastic. Thank you very much. Appreciate that. Uh, Serena, what are you suggesting? Yeah, so I'm continuing with the theme of um, you know, the importance of recognizing men's mental health um, and really creating that culture of them feeling comfortable with disclosing um, their struggles. So in uh, continuing with the theme of football um, and understanding you know, the implications of being a footballer. Um, Luke Shaw, so Manchester United released an article with Luke Shaw. Um, he's a left back for uh, Manchester United. And he talked about his struggles um, with mental health, um, you know, especially as a footballer, a male footballer, um, and struggling to really, you know, find um, comfortability in expressing himself. And he said for years, he, you know, would go home and kind of deal with it himself, but he said never really went away. Um, you know, especially in terms of um, when he got injured and the mental health, but there's some really great um, points from him in there. And I think, you know, especially having somebody like Luke Shaw, you know, he's been player of the month this month for Manchester United in being open, you know, he's really kind of, you know, setting the tone and, and creating um, that space that, you know, hopefully, you know, whether if they're a footballer, um, but males can look at that and be like, actually, it's okay. It's okay to, you know, open up. It's okay for me to talk about my thoughts and feelings. Fantastic. Thank you very much. You can tell you've definitely been here a while because it's football and not soccer. Is that is that like in your brain? You're trying to say soccer, but you just have to correct yourself. I always find that fascinating. It's so funny. I yeah, I've been here now for over seven and a half years. But um, yeah, I had a coach that literally said he's like, you can never say soccer here in, in a British accent. I'm not going to do a British accent. But uh, yeah, no, it's been ingrained in me by this point. <laughs> okay. No, great stuff. Thank you. Uh, Alex, finish us off. What are you suggesting? Um, so I'm going to suggest a video. So it's up on YouTube. Um, it's called The Happiness Trap, The Evolution of the Human Mind. Um, I attended a little uh, a kind of series of workshops over the weekend. Um, I was presenting, but I also sat in on some of the others and I saw this. I've seen it before. I think it's just a brilliant video. It's about three and a half minutes long. It's uh, by a guy called Dr. Russ Harris, who's like a really leading uh, kind of proponent of acceptance and commitment therapy, which is a specific psychology kind of uh, therapy school. Um, but it's just a really wonderful uh, summary of like some of the sort of the, basically the way our brains are kind of unfortunately still very much geared up for kind of survival as kind of cave people um, and how unhelpful that can be in a, in a modern day environment. So I think it's something that um, is just really relevant all the time. I think we're, we're, we now have a bit of light on the horizon in terms of kind of lockdown ending and things like that. But, you know, just some of the thoughts and, and preoccupations that people might have had, particularly over the last few months, but just in general, as part of modern society, it's just a really helpful way of kind of framing that and actually coming back to the idea of noticing that, just just kind of acknowledging some of the thoughts that you have maybe aren't super helpful, but they, they come from a part of your brain that is designed to help and protect you. So it's sort of with the best of intentions, but it's just unfortunately not very suitable for 2021 fantastic no i love that thank you very much um just yeah i've really enjoyed this it's, it's been a fascinating conversation as i say i definitely probably owe you all money for um the the therapy session which is great and just picking your brains but um i will now round up the roundup so uh for our listeners we hope you enjoyed the episode thanks again to my guests for their time and contributions to a really really insightful discussion links to all the content discussed are available in the blurb on rugby coach weekly please subscribe like and share but thank you again for listening wish you all the best and go well 